Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 402. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited to introduce to you this week's guest, George Newberry. George is a real estate investor and he takes a unique approach on his investment philosophy. It's something that we don't discuss too much on the show here, but we're going to be talking a little bit about note investing, finding distressed assets, and all the things that come with that. So today, welcome to the podcast, George. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's our pleasure. Well, George, tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, how you got started in real estate investing, just kind of all that good stuff. Maybe take us back to the early days, if you will. Yeah, I'll go to the very early days. So I raced bikes. I used to race bicycles. I was in the 1988 Olympic trials and uh, wow. I was on a, yeah, I traveled the country racing bikes and it was a lot of fun. I did that for four or five years, but by when I was 25, I realized, I or 24, I realized I wasn't making, you know, I raced with the top pros and amateurs in the country, but you still don't make much money unless you're like in the top, like Lance Armstrong on top. So I was decided I needed to make some money. So one of my teammates, his uh, his girlfriend always seemed to have nice cars, seemed to be doing pretty well. So she helped me get my real estate license and become a mortgage loan originator. In fact, I got a job at her company and when she was promoted. And what I did is I used all the focus, determination, that I had uh, developed from bike racing and applied that to mortgage loan origination, which is basically me sitting in a contact center answering phones. And then I make a commission if I set an appointment for somebody who ended up getting a loan. And that was my job. But I quickly realized that the more time I spent in the office, they open at eight, they close at eight. So I would get there at eight and leave at eight. And the more time I spent, the more phone calls I answered, the more money I was going to make. It was all numbers. And when I went to the restroom, I'd run to the restroom and I'd run back. I just wanted to be in front of that phone. And you know, most of my workmates would go to lunch. They'd have doctor's appointments and all that kind of stuff. I brought my lunch, ate, ate at the desk. It was just, how can I do this as best as possible? And I knew nothing about mortgages when I started, but within six months, I was top producer. Then I uh, became a loan officer, branch manager, and eventually started my own mortgage company with a partner. And that was in, so my, I got that job in 1990. I started my mortgage company, which is still around in 1992. And that was my start in real estate. It wasn't what I set out to do. It was just happened to be that, you know, this friend of mine helped get me started. And it's been a long journey since then. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to have somebody's perspective like yours, George, coming from that mortgage industry, you know, you started at the ground floor and kind of worked your way up. So you really understand one of the most important pieces of real estate investing, and that is the debt, the mortgages behind the assets, yeah. right? So, you know, tell us a little about what you learned and how you applied that to your own investing philosophy going forward. Sure. When I started my mortgage company in 92, I was many of the loans we were making, it was, this was the downturn in the early nineties, there was a downturn in Southern California and, or most of the West coast, I think it's the downturn there started late eighties in uh, Texas and kind of rippled through the country. And it hit California in the early nineties. 
And I was making loans to people who were buying REO properties. And I saw, well, they're getting great deals. So I said, hey, I could probably do this. So I bought a four unit building, first ever real estate purchase. And then I uh, bought 19 units and then I bought 60 units. And I said, well, you know, this is, I eventually kind of spent most of my time buying and rehabbing apartment buildings. And my strategy was to buy the most challenging properties, which I could buy at the greatest discounts and then yeah. try to add value. And I was very, very hands-on. And so eventually in LA, in Southern California, I owned about 500 units. And the last building I bought was the biggest one I bought. It was 298 units. And this will give you an example of the types of buildings that I bought, but 298 units in downtown Los Angeles. And I bought it for 850,000. And you can do the numbers. That's just like 2,000 some a door. And people will scratch their head and say, how did that happen? And so I'll tell you how it happened. And it wasn't a secret deal. In about five or six years before, the same building sold for around four and a half million dollars. But it was in such bad condition that the owner got put in jail by the slum housing task force for the conditions at the property. So he sold it and he sold it for two and a half million. And now the problem is that owner also went to jail. And so then he oh, sold it to somebody. <laughs> I know you see a pattern here. So he sold it to someone else and that guy bought it for $2 million and he went to jail. So now it was up for sale and everybody was saying, it was kind of easy to do the math. You buy this building, you go to jail. And <laughs> <laughs> so they were advertising the building. It was broadly marketed for 850,000 and no one would buy it. So comes in me, you know, young and starry eyed. And I said, no, I can do this thing. So I ended up buying it for 850. And to top it off, they made it even more attractive because no one, not only would no one buy it, no one wanted to finance it. So I ended up putting down 200 grand and the owner who was in jail financed the 650. (laughs) So it was truly a good deal as long as I stayed out of jail. So that was the key. So before I bought it, I knew some of the inspectors that were on the task force because, you know, I bought these other kind of rough properties and we worked together and, you know, they, we had a meeting and they said, Hey, This was before I bought it. They said, do not buy this thing. You've done well on these other smaller projects, but we're going to end up adversarial here. This just don't buy it. And, you know, of course, no, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to buy it. And so they said, after I bought it, they said, okay, you have six months. We can't put other people in jail and not pursue you, but you got six months. So if you can get this thing done in six months, you're good. But if it goes longer, you're in trouble. And so after that, I was saying, no, no, I'll get it done. I'll get it done. And I worked diligently on this. I was there probably almost every day. And the inspectors would come by once a month. And every time they came by, they say, hey, it's looking great. Because I was making good progress. But I remember on uh, New Year's Eve, this is 1998, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, you're in the paper. And I said, for what? And he said, uh, 38 criminal charges filed against Redondo Beach Man. So they ended up, and not only did they file the charges, it was in the Los Angeles Times. So that was difficult to hear, to say the least. But the first thing I thought about was my parents reading this in the paper. So I lived about 10 minutes from my parents' house. I got in my car, I drove to my parents' house, found the LA Times, and I grabbed the Metro section, which had this article about me in there. And I think I grabbed an apple and said, bye. And that was it. And I didn't tell them what had happened until months later, once it was on path to resolution. But that was what happened. So that gives you an idea. Now, what happened after that? I couldn't get a hold of my attorney all day. And it was a Friday. So I remember with the whole weekend, totally stressed out, like, oh my God, what's going to happen? But I talked to my attorney on Monday. He called the city attorney and the city attorney said, yes, we're getting good reports that your client's making progress, but we can't selectively prosecute. So we had no choice but to do this. However, they made a plea deal, a plea deal 
Um, basically, I agreed to pay a $10,000 fine and I went on probation and I was saying, oh my God, I might have to go to like a probation office every week or something like that. And no, my attorney said it's summary probation, which basically the lightest form of probation for three years. And as long as I did not run into, get any other trouble and I continued to make good progress on this, then they weren't going to, then eventually the probation would end. And so 11 months later, so it took me a total of 17 months to turn around this property. The inspectors all came on one day and were not able to find a single violation. And so they signed it off. I was outside. The building was no longer the target of the task force. And I promptly sold the building, made more than a million bucks. And I was like, oh, it was good and bad. It was great to make some money. But the bad part is it really emboldened me. It, set, it made me think that I could take on any building that everyone else has failed at and I could be the one to turn it around. And so I went on a quest and I started buying the most challenging big projects across the country. So the LA market had rebounded. And so I went to Kansas City. I bought 233 units where they had eight murders in the prior year. And I bought the building at on a courthouse steps auction for 1.6 million. I put in, I forget, like a million and a half, $2 million in work, turned it around, got it leased up. And then Wells Fargo, came in and appraised it. They appraised it like 8.5 million. And so they gave me a $5 million loan. So basically I got all my money back and then some, and I was like, oh, I'm going to keep doing this. So I bought more and more and it ended up with me at a bankruptcy court auction for the, one of the biggest properties in the whole country called uh, Woodland Meadows in Columbus, Ohio. It's 1,100 units. Wow. Okay. And yeah, a massive property, 54 acres, 122 buildings, just a whole, it's like a mini city. And I bought it. It was nicknamed Uzi Alley, just totally infested with drugs, gangs, prostitutes. And I bought it and for 13 and a half million bucks and, and went around. I moved in, which was big news. The property was in the, constantly in the headlines in Columbus, Ohio, because it backed into Bexley, which is the highest income neighborhood in Columbus. And there you had Willow Meadows, which is you know, probably was targeted towards low income. And I moved in, said about my work, and, and and we were spending more than $10 million on rehab, did all this work, and turned it around. And just by all accounts, a big success, had some accolades in the newspaper, got the Ohio House of Representatives, gave us a commendation. So really exciting, big, big, big success. And I was ready, looking for my next adventure. And then the property, Woodland Meadows, got hit by an ice storm, and it was the biggest, largest federally declared disaster in Ohio history, and it triggered it just absolutely devastated the property. It was just an extraordinary damage to the property. And you can picture this. So storm comes through Christmas Eve and knocks out power to more than half the city of Columbus, including all of our property. So we have no power. Now in our property, there are boilers, which heat the water, pump it out, and it goes through and provides radiant heat into all the units. Now with no power, the boiler stopped working. So now we had no electric and no heat and the temperatures were below zero. It was like negative eight right then. So very, very, very cold. So what happened is the water in those pipes froze and it was both the domestic water that people you know shower and cook with as well as the water in these heating pipes. Then we had, so below zero wet temperatures, thousands of people living there, no electricity, no water, no heat. Just a, And that went on for four or five days. It was just an absolute, absolute, truly, and it was Christmas, just a complete disaster. When things finally warmed up, the Red Cross opened a shelter across the street in a church. And we had, uh, we told people you can break your leases, you can go, you can leave. 
And at that point, that was only the beginning. It was, you know, trees were down across the property. There were power lines down. And, but then when it started warming up, all the pipes started unfreezing and they started bursting. So the damage just escalated dramatically. All the first floor units were partially subterranean. They all had, you know, four or five feet of water in them. Just truly an absolute disaster. And the next disaster was that I called the uh, insurance company. They came out, they were there about half an hour and they said, there's a lot of damage. Then they sent me, called me back the next day and said, your claim's denied. And I was like, oh my God, how can it be denied? I had, I had $50 million of insurance on this project. And they said, no, the damage was caused by the boilers and you need boiler endorsements. And I talked to my attorney. He said, and A, the, the boilers had been in October, just a few months before, it had all been inspected by the state, had all been signed off. And my attorney said, no, this is common when you have a big, big insurance claim, the insurance company would simply deny it until, yeah, wait for you to sue. And then, you know, eventually they'll settle, but settle at a discount because they try to wait you out and get you desperate. So that's what happened. But I made a huge, huge mistake at that point. I was confident. I heard what my attorney said, and I did hear the part, like, eventually I'll get paid. But instead of waiting until I got paid, I said, no, I'm going to rebuild this now. I took loans on all my other properties that I owned across the country. And I took that money and I started putting it into the property. But the damage, at first I thought, you know, okay, this is 5 million, 6 million. But as we dug deeper, there was just more and more damage. And pretty soon we had spent more than $20 million and we were still nowhere near done. So I was out of money and the insurance claim still wasn't paid. And so I could never have imagined the city, I later found out really wanted this property. Again, it was backed into a high-end neighborhood and it was a low-income property. It was one of the biggest properties in the city of Columbus. So they for whatever reason, decided that they wanted the property and they wanted to get rid of low-income housing and summon me to a meeting where I had to bring in financials and stuff like that, which I went in the mayor's office. And they made me an offer, which I should have taken, but I didn't. They said, hey, you have all these tax credits, you have these Section 8 contracts, why don't you move them to another property? And then you know the city could take over this property. And I should have taken a deal, made a deal with them, which would have been cooperative. But instead I said, I tunnel vision, you know, going back to my bike racing days. No, I rebuilt this once. I get to rebuild again. It's going to be an awesome property like it was when I finished it beforehand. And so I didn't take their deal. And the city then within weeks, they were out at the property with three day notices to evacuate the property. They said that based on their inspections, that they discovered a construction defect that was from a prior owner and a shortcut. And that defect had rendered all the buildings subject to imminent collapse. And I talked to my attorney, we hired an engineer, the engineer came out there and said that they're not subject to imminent collapse. And we went into court, we both went in, in front of a judge, we were requesting a temporary restraining order against the city. And we presented our finding, I know, it, it's just so ridiculous. The engineer presented our findings, like these are buildings are all safe. They're not subject to imminent collapse. The city was there and the judge was like, well, where's your engineer? And they said, no, we don't have an engineer or any report. We just think they're subject to imminent collapse. So the judge granted our temporary restraining order. So now, and the judge said, okay, I could give you six months to get all this damage fixed. And if you do that, then you're fine. And so we entered into this agreement and the city was party to it. And the court appointed a monitor who would show up at our construction meetings every Monday, and he would report back to the court with the progress. And well, right away, the first thing I needed money. So I told my attorney, settle for whatever you can get from the insurance company. Let's get this done and get this thing fixed. So he settled for uh, $32 million. 
which seems like a lot of money because it is a lot of money, but the damage ended up costing us more than $45 million. So just an outrageous number. But we took the 32, we got to work. We had like 200 people a day working at the property. And by all accounts, all the reports back to the court were that we were making great progress. Now, my problem is that the city wasn't done. We went to HUD and told HUD to pull our contracts. And so HUD came out to the property and said, hey, there's damage here. You have 30 days to fix everything. And I went to court and said, hey, HUD is telling me 30 days. I just ended a court agreement that said that I have six months. There's no way I can get this thing done in 30 days. So the court appeared sympathetic and they summoned HUD into to court to explain why they're only giving me 30 days. And HUD responded saying that they are federal agency and they're not subject to a municipal court and we're not showing up. So what happened is 30 days later, the HUD showed up, were there for about five minutes, said, you're not done. Send me a letter saying all your contracts are terminated. And that was kind of the fire nail in the coffin. Six months later, the property is completely vacant. The city eventually ended up owning it, which they own it to this day. And that subsequent 18 to 24 months, I lost almost everything. And I ended up $26 million in debt. And that was the unhappy ending to that story. Holy cow, George. I don't even know where to start. You came out of the gate swinging. I thought the downtown LA building, through listening to you, I've got chills. I had a lump in my throat. I, uh, I, I kind of want to crawl in a hole and hide just listening to these stories. I have no idea how you've got the resolve to be on a podcast speaking about these things today. Any problem I've yes. ever had in real estate pales in comparison uh, to one of your minor problems here. So, Wow. I don't even know where to take this, but okay, let's back up. I thought you came out of the gate swinging with your downtown LA property that you know you were going to be the fourth person to go to jail just owning this thing. I thought that was crazy. Nah. <laughs> now you you dominoed, you had some momentum, you dominoed to the next deal and the next deal, crescendoing to this eleven hundred unit apartment building that, by all accounts, you know you, you did. You were a great landlord. You know, you put so much money into this property only to, you know, have Mother Nature, you know, wreck your dreams and, and hopes and dashes. And then it goes all back to the city. You leveraged, you know, all your other properties to try to keep this one afloat. You lose it all. You're minus $26 million in the hole. What is going through your mind at this point? That was a low point in my life. I mean, that goes almost without saying it was tough. You know, I had the option of filing bankruptcy, which I never did. And I felt like I was conceding that I had failed. I, I did fail. And, you know, I can blame it on the city. I can blame it on Storm. But ultimately, I made those decisions. What I should have done in retrospect, which is always easy to say, when that storm hit, I should have just said, until the insurance companies pay me, I can't do any work to the property. Leave all my other properties alone. And eventually, we would have settled. And I wouldn't have spent all that money. Because think about it. I spent tens of millions of dollars. And you know, a year and a half later, the city was completely demolished the property. So all that money was gone and just squandered. And so just I should have vacated the property and just waited it out, left everything else. That would have been a good decision. So I didn't make the right decision there. The next one is I should have read between the lines. When I met with the mayor's office, they just said, hey, here's what we can offer you. And I said, no, I got to fix it up. Now they did say, okay, if you don't take our offer, we're going to come at you and we're going to knock you out. They didn't say that. But I should have read between the lines and say, okay, if I don't do what the city wants, then this isn't going to work out too happily. And the decision to lever the other properties, complete, never do it, a completely wrong move. Historically, I'd bought these tough properties. I'd always turned them around. I just worked really hard. Even if I made kind of, maybe I didn't, didn't always buy the best deal, but I work hard. So 
I still make them work. And so I always figured I could just work harder and then I'd make it work. And this was one that no matter how hard I worked, in retrospect, there was no way I was going to win. So that was unfortunate. And that's how it played out. You know, now I guess I know better. For the next couple of years, it was devastating. I mean, I couldn't do projects. No one would finance me. No one wanted to work with me. I had millions of dollars in judgments against me. I'd even been arrested for failure to appear at one of the court hearings, which I was never noticed on. My credit, I have no uh, criminal history. The record's been exonerated. But there was negative news articles. It was just a disaster. And some, you know, I remember a friend, a cousin had read one of the articles and emailed it to my dad to say, oh, have you heard about this? It was like, oh my God, because I tried to keep my parents kind of up to date, but I didn't want to hear like the worst of it because you're, you, I can only imagine they were like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, you as a parent, wasn't at the time I am now, you want to protect your kids from this. And my parents, what could you do? I was out there and, you know, just being beaten up in the media. So all this happened in 2004 was the ice storm. By end of 2005, 2006, I was financially flatlined. Now, if you recall, those are like super hot real estate period in real estate. If I had survived, I'd probably done really well. I mean, I'd already done really well, but I could have done even better. But now 2007, I started hearing about, you know, the subprime mortgage crisis and all these millions of families across the country, they're at risk of foreclosure. And we're going through some of the same things that I had gone through just on a smaller scale. But, you know, they're uh, facing foreclosure, getting kicked out of their home. When I was going through it, I felt feelings of failure, shame, guilt. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done differently? All these things kind of going through your head and you try to not even think about it, but it's hard not to. And so now all these millions of families were kind of going through the same thing that I had gone, you know, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Failure, shame, guilt, embarrassment. And so I started a company called American Home and Preservation, which was originally a nonprofit. And it had a mission of keeping families at risk of foreclosure in their homes. And uh, it started out with me and two other people, tiny little office. And we had thousands of families come to us and we would advocate on their behalf with their lenders. And I thought, hey, these lenders will agree to solutions that made sense. But many times they didn't. And they deny our proposals. And lots of times it would take them six months, a year, 18 months to get to the point where they say, hey, you're denied. And at that same time, they say, hey, oh, and by the way, your foreclosure sales next week. So these people, we tried to help them, but I only helped about 10% of the people who came to us. So I said, there's got to be a better way. And so what I did was we became a for-profit and we started buying the mortgages and we started buying defaulted mortgages and pools from banks and mortgage holders, hedge funds. And that is the pivot that really worked. All of a sudden we own the mortgage, we buy these at big discounts and I could share the discounts with the families. And if I did that, if the families wanted to stay, I could forgive some of the delinquency, I could reduce the payment, reduce the principal. And that worked. And we had in the last decade, we bought more than 10,000 mortgages. We set up a few funds that have done it. And that has kind of laid the way right now. What started as you know me and two helpers in 2008 is now, between all our entities, is you know over 100 people that work in our different for-profit companies that all still have a social mission of helping families at risk of foreclosure. And now it's transitioned as foreclosure is no longer been the focus, also to increase homeownership primarily in low and moderate communities across the country. So that's what we do. But a lot of that's been accomplished through buying notes at discounts. So what we learned to do with the mortgages to work these things out, if I owed a bank, because that majority of that $26 million was personal guarantees that I owed, owed to banks on loans that I took out. And if a bank came to me and said, hey, you owe us $2 million, you got to pay it. And I was broke. You know, that's not going to help. Now they come to me and say, hey, we can reduce what you owe. We'll give you a payment plan on it. Okay, that's something I, maybe we can talk about. So that's what we did when we bought these loans. We owned a loan for somebody and they owed 100,000. The home was only worth 50 and they were behind 20,000. 
I'm never going to collect it. I'm never collect the hundred. So if I go to them and, and say, hey, pay us the hundred grand plus the 20 delinquency, it's just unrealistic. But if I go to right. them and say, hey, you owe a hundred, but the home's only worth 50. How about you give us, if you can come up with 45, it's done. We'll settle right off the difference. If you can't come up with 45, you know, we'll give a modification. Give us, instead of that 20,000 you owe, give us $2,000. We're right off the difference. We'll reduce the payment, reduce the principal. And that was all possible because we probably bought the loan for 20 grand. So there was a lot of flexibility. So no matter what the outcome, we could still make money. And that was a generator term for the investors and also deliver a financial transformation for the family. So that's what we've done. And that's what we continue to do. Now, in the last few years, you know, there's less and less families at risk of foreclosure and less and less help needed for that. But that's been our model. And again, I'll say that a lot of the reason we can execute that model successfully is because of what I went through when I was in trouble. Yeah, George, in your intro, I said, hey, George is experienced buying distressed properties. I had no idea to the extent of what you were experiencing from that first downtown LA property, the 298 units crescendoing, like we mentioned, to the 1100 units in Columbus. I'm sure there's so many people out there who are so fortunate and personally thankful to you that you had the resolve to continue going and investing and you know just not throw your hands up when you're sitting there and I'm sure a very dark place down 26 million dollars I cannot fathom what that feels like I hope I don't ever have to <laughs> feel that feeling but man I think what I really like about your story so far and this pivot which you've done is kind of taken that hardship and realize that hey many other people face that maybe on a different scale there you know being forced out of their homes blah 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 you know especially in this time frame you're investing in the you know, subprime mortgage crisis, the financial crisis, great financial crisis. So I really like what you did there. Now you've gone on to buy, you mentioned 10,000 notes. Tell us a little bit about how that works, what that means, kind of walk through the logistics of note investing. Sure. So note investing, you know, you're buying a mortgage, you know, you'll see a house, let's say it's worth $200,000. Now, if there's a mortgage on that, I'll use hundred to make it easy. So the house is worth a hundred grand. Back then, the values had just collapsed. So that house that had a hundred grand mortgage was probably only worth 50. So I could buy that mortgage for 20,000 bucks typically back then, only like 40% because it's low value and whatnot. Then we own the mortgage. We can do whatever we want with it in terms of forgiving debt or agreeing to a mod or a deed in lieu. If the family didn't want to keep it, we pay cash for a deed in lieu. And that's what we did. Now, and people, if sometimes there's a disconnect. People who hear about what we do, they say, wait, so the family owes a hundred grand. The home's only worth fifty. You buy it for twenty, but you know what happens to the other eighty? The other eighty still do. So we just bought the hundred thousand dollar debt. We paid twenty for it. Now the numbers have changed as you know from the crisis to today. The discounts have compressed significantly. Today that same deal, if it, the values have also gone up. So now let's say it's worth a hundred, and the property value is a hundred because everything's rebounded by and large. It'd probably sell for like 75. So there's still a healthy discount, still 25% discount. And then you're able to do what you now own that $100,000 in debt. So if you foreclose on it and you end up with the house and it's worth 100, you just paid 75 for it. Now, plus some expenses or whatever to foreclose, but it is a business model that can really work. And it's become super competitive the last three or four years. You know, the tail end, there's less supply of defaulted mortgages. The market's rebounded dramatically. But we're entering into another era. There's high likelihood of a downturn in the next uh, six to 18 months. There's already some signs you know, that there's some softening in the real estate market. And so there'll be more families, unfortunately, that are in the same position as 2008, where the property values drop. They took out a loan 
you know, six months ago, maybe the people at most risk, they bought it at the very top of the market. And now the property values drop and maybe the economic turbulence, uh, some people lose their jobs or whatever happens, or even simply because they owe more than the houses were. Some people, a good likelihood that we will have some kind of a repeat of 2008, maybe not the same severity, but there will be a downturn. And if you go back through history, there's uh, history will show expansion, contraction, expansion, contraction. When I started real estate in the early 90s, there was a contraction. You know, I was in California where I really felt it, but by you know, the late 90s, it was expanding again. So same thing. We're entering in a period of contraction and that will create opportunities. But also, unfortunately, there's collateral damage and that collateral damage is families who are caught up in this and maybe bought at the height of the expansion and now in the contraction, they may not be able to keep their homes, but that creates opportunities for note investing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. I think, you know, there's so many ways to invest in real estate, George. You know, you were first doing a model that I'm very interested in, you know, multifamily, larger multifamily. It doesn't sound like you're necessarily syndicating those deals. It sounds like they're all kind of your own primary capital. But then you transition mm-hmm. to this note investing. It, you know, there's not very many ways to really truly invest passively in real estate. You know, that term gets thrown around a lot, but then you find yourself managing a duplex and you know, answering tenant calls and things. But note investing is one of those things that could be relatively passive compared to other strategies. You know, you're just owning the mortgage. You don't necessarily own the property when things are performing right, correct? So you don't own that property until you have to possibly foreclose on it. That's pretty well correct, right? That is absolutely. I mean, I can be behind my desk right now and own thousands of mortgages across the managed funds that own thousands of mortgages across the country and do it all from here. We own mortgages in Hawaii. We've owned mortgages in Alaska, but here I am in Chicago. We can manage it all from here. And we're never having to go and see a property or anything like that. It just can all be done. So I guess as I'm older now, back then I was no problem you know, being on the ground and all that stuff right now. Not that I have a problem with it, but I have two young kids. It's definitely something where I prefer to come into the office, operate everything, and then go home and do it there's rarely where there be calls about, oh, there's a stopped up toilet or there's a leaky roof and stuff like that. That's for the property owner to work with. And if they're paying loans, if you primarily buy paying performing loans, you know, then you're just by and large uh, collecting payments. Not to say at some point, you know, there's a market contraction or whatnot and some of these people struggle, but then it's primarily collecting. But even doing what we do, which is primarily by non-performing loans, it's still something that it's an active investment, but it isn't something where you're having to, you know, boots on the ground or all the stuff that is something to take is it can take to be a successful real estate investor. Sure. Well, at the time of this recording is August 2022 for our listeners listening into this right now. George, you mentioned, you know, kind of where we're at in the state of the economy. We're starting to see a little bit of softening in some markets here and there. And that's just relative to the historical price appreciation we've seen year over year for the past 18 plus months. What does the future look like in your forecast? And what are you doing personally to prepare? What are you seeing coming down the pipeline? Sure. There's definitely some challenges in the future, which also creates opportunities. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something where right now, this very moment in August, it's tough. People are still buying, but the rate, the demand has definitely softened. You're no longer seeing multiple offers like you were just six months ago. You're also not, the appreciation is probably leveled off. I imagine, I haven't seen significant depreciation yet, but I, that's on the horizon. I think we'll see that in you know, six, 12 months. We'll start seeing, wow, this was worth X a year ago. And now that year over year, you're going to start seeing that drop, I think, by sometime next year. And then the extent of the contraction. I mean, the problems are that as it gets bad, consumer sentiment 
sours as it's already starting to do. And people maybe are less confident about the future. And oh boy, I bought this home for $800,000. And now they see one across the street for sale for 680. And they say, oh my God, I highly got to either I'm at risk of losing my down payment or some of my, or I owe more than the house is worth. And then they, then when they get hit with a job loss, death in the family, divorce, it's no longer like, how do we hang out of this house? It's, uh uh-oh, maybe we just give up the house and give it back to the lender. And so values drop, drop, drop. And at the same time, it kind of feeds on itself because then other people say, oh, now I owe 800 less on this house. It's only worth 600, which is what happened last go round. Then you really start seeing a significant, decline, significant disruption in the real estate market. And again, it's there will be a contraction. I, I think everyone's confident of that. The extent of it, though, the magnitude is tough to gauge. And why is it tough to gauge? Partially is because there's so many artificial ingredients, both in the run-up. Because by the time COVID hit, I was thinking, okay, COVID is going to be the thing that triggers the downturn. And instead, it did the exact opposite. It triggered an extraordinarily period of rapid appreciation that followed you know, eight to 10 years of significant appreciation on its own. So right now we've, you know, massive appreciation this last decade. And what is going to, how bad is it going to be? I mean, the reality is if prices simply go back to where they were in March of 2020, when all the COVID shutdowns start, that would be severely challenging to the real estate market, severely challenging to our economy, because now you're talking about probably a 25 to 30% haircut. And that was on top of a decade of probably another 20% plus appreciation. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I don't know. And then the interest rate hikes, the, this last couple of interest rate hikes have really what's been put the brakes on the economy. And it was to curb inflation, which makes sense. But the interest rates had gotten so low because of you know government intervention. And now government intervention is pushing them up. So the, it's not organic. There's a lot of artificial forces here. And you know the primary tool to kind of stimulate the economy is always drop interest rates. So now they've risen them back up. I suppose they could drop them. They'll need to if this market contracts you know, significantly more. But yeah, it's, it's hard to predict. But there, it's, there's no way that I don't think anyone's out there saying, hey, the market's going to continue to appreciate or it's going to just level off and then just plateau and then start going up again. There has to be some kind of correction. The extent of it is an unknown. Well, as somebody who's experienced many corrections throughout their career, I would definitely Uh heed your advice, George. You've lived it. You've experienced it firsthand. You've been through the ups and downs. I just am still reeling over your journey to the multifamily portfolio you built up and came crashing down. I just, I can't get over the emotional roller coaster there. I'm fascinated Uh by the note investing. You know, we might need to do a part two with this podcast to, you know, bring you back on and kind of do a deep dive into the note investing. But man, uh, so much great content there. Let's kind of start to wrap up a little bit. Talk about what you're Mm -hmm. doing with your company pre REO and how people can get involved in note investing there, because it's a very new thing to many of the listeners, I'm sure. And they probably don't know where to go out and buy a note, you know. So talk about how people could learn more about you there. Sure. So pre-REO is a response to a couple of things. One is when we first decided that we wanted to buy notes, it was very difficult. You can't call Bank of America. You can call them and say, I want to do a mod. I want to do a short sale. I want to pay off my loan. But there's no place to ask, hey, I want to buy your loans. It's a very opaque market, was then, still is today. It's mostly institutions to institutions. And there's reasons for that. But it was difficult to break in. Eventually, we did. And then in 2018, I held a note buyer bootcamp. I wanted to teach people how to buy notes on themselves. And two big questions came out of that. One is where can I find the notes? 
And two is how can I finance the notes? And I didn't really have good answers for either of those questions. I could teach you how to do it, but then the next step is actually do it. I didn't have great answers. So I created Pre-REO and Pre-REO is a marketplace where institutions will sell non-performing mortgages directly to real estate investors on a one-off basis. So that's just been unheard of in the past. And these are going straight from institutions. They can be bought at great discounts. And, as opposed uh, to like a pool of mortgages, right? As opposed to a pool, which is what mortgage. normally happens. Yeah. Yeah. So these are just like you buy one at a time. And since we've been doing this a couple of years, we've got people make tens of thousands, people make hundreds of thousands on single pre-arios. One guy made more than a million dollars in one single pre-ario purchase. So wow. now he bought that one for 1.8 million. So it was a big ticket item, but he made a lot of money. And there's just been a lot of great success stories. And then everything on the platform, we finance 75% of it. So we have built-in financing and that has been a model that's worked well. I keep telling uh, my team, we're building this for when the next downturn hits, when there'll be a massive volume of defaulted mortgages that hit the market. And we want to be the preferred outlet for institutions. And we're having good success. We have Goldman Sachs backed uh, hedge funds who are listing on the platform. Other big hedge funds, institutions are listing on the platform. You know, we went to them beforehand and said, here's what we're doing. And, you know, if you have 100 loans, you could be selling to 100 different buyers. And first, it was a non-starter. They say, we're not going to do that. Know your customer checks, 100 different contracts. It's just not worth it. What we did is we created a trust, the Trustees U.S. Bank. And so all the loans get sold into the trust. So the sellers only face one buyer. And then the individual real estate investors get a participation interest in the asset or assets that they acquire. And they get delegated authority, manage the assets, they get all the upside. But that's been the tool using that trust with US Bank, trust as a trustee has been the key component to differentiating this and making it accessible for investors, for institutions, and also making it accessible for real estate investors. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's pre-reo.com. I've been searching around there this morning, really good stuff. Awesome, very streamlined platform. Yeah, this is a bit of a new space to me, George, as well. So I find it very interesting you know, especially when you couple that with where we're at in the economy right now and, you Mm -hmm. know, possibly this impending downturn, you know, nobody knows the future, but, you know, you're somebody who's, you know, experienced many market cycles and got a lot more experience than I do. So I'd listen to you over me for sure. (laughs) This is really interesting stuff, George. I mean, so much content to unpack here. I'd really like to have you back on for a second episode sometime in the near future, especially, you know, as the market continues to change. So, as we're wrapping up here, oh man, such such a crazy story. I still cannot get over nah. your, your background. You know, I'll have to go back and kind of digest that and uh, get over that before we do a take two on this. But thanks so much for your time today. If people want to reach out, connect with you, learn more about you, learn a little bit about your resolve, where could they find more about you? They go to preario.com. They can reach me directly through there. We also, I wrote a book called Burn Zones. I don't know if you can see it, but it's on yes. Amazon. It gives a story of where I be making a ton of money, losing a ton of money, and then rebuilding. And awesome. uh, and so it's Burn Zones, it's on Amazon and all the, you know, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, places like that. So that's how you can learn more. And, you know, I, I see note investing as a great opportunity for real estate investors, especially with our likely upcoming downturn. So I encourage uh, people to check out Preario. Awesome. George Newberry, founder of Preario, one of the people with the most resolve I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Until next time with that part two. Thanks, George. Thanks, Jacob. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. 
please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.